0: ladies and gentlemen welcome to the confluence cast presented by columbus underground we are a weekly columbus centric podcast focusing on the civics lifestyle entertainment and people of our city i'm your host tim fulton This week, we're discussing the Columbus region's position in the transit landscape with former United States Secretary of Transportation, Anthony Fox. First up, Fox, who now works in policy for Lyft, sat down with Columbus Underground reporter Brent Warren to discuss the importance of helping people with technology. They talked about autonomous vehicles and dealing with the impending growth of Columbus. After that chat, you'll hear Fox's speech at the Morpsey 2019 State of the Region meeting last week. You can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Also, the Confluence Cast is on Patreon. Find out how to support this podcast on our website, theconfluencecast.com, or at patreon.com slash confluence. The Confluence Cast is sponsored this week by the Mid-Ohio Regional Planning Commission, or MORPC, featuring stories about local and regional partners that envision and embrace innovative directions in economic prosperity, transportation, sustainability, and an inclusive Central Ohio. MORPC's transformative programming, innovative services, and public policy initiatives are designed to promote and support the vitality and growth in the region. For more information, please visit morpsey.org. Enjoy the interview.
1: All right. right. Anthony Fox, thanks for being here with us today. really appreciate it. Uh, We have to talk about the Smart City Challenge. I mean, that was uh, kind of a signature initiative of yours at the Department of Transportation and... I was at an event years ago when Columbus was a finalist among the different cities, and and you spoke at that event, and here we are, I think, almost three years after Columbus won the challenge. Have you been following the progress of Columbus since that time?
2: Well, I unfortunately haven't been back to Columbus since we announced the challenge, but I certainly have been following Mm -hmm. the progress of it, Um, actually talking to people from around the world, Uh, many of my former counterparts, in other parts of the world have come to Columbus to see what is happening here, and uh, it's also a sign of, of how important what Columbus is doing here to the rest of the world.
1: Mm-hmm. And what, what is it that people are interested in seeing in Columbus?
2: Well, uh, obviously there's a, there's a high interest in the integration of technology and transportation. It's a big topic, not only in the US, but all over the world. Uh, and so that draws a lot of very high interest. Uh, this is going to be a bit of a test bed for uh, many things, autonomous vehicles, uh, how uh, trucking and, and transportation uh, and technology evolve, um, sustainability, electrification of the fleet. All those things are going to be the subject of a lot of, uh, a lot of intense scrutiny. But what I also have been uh, watching and following is uh, the extent to which Columbus is successful at elevating people above technology, uh, one of the challenges we face today is that there's such a rush to integrate new technologies, we're sometimes not thinking about the users and the people who are affected. and. Um, hopefully technology will serve humanity well, but I think Columbus will be at the tip of the spear in proving that out one way or the other.
1: Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I think there's been a lot of talk about that in Columbus. How do you maintain the equity and make sure that these systems work for everybody, not just people who can afford them? Do you see that as a public sector role to make sure that happens? How does the private sector play into that?
2: Well, typically, um, the private sector is is, is out, out to sell something. Um, but in this case, the cities have an inordinate amount of both responsibility and latitude to set the terms of engagement. And those terms should include so- solutions that actually pick up the entire population. And that's one of the reasons why equity was a part of the Smart City Challenge from the beginning as a criteria, is that we wanted to... Um, to to challenge both cities and innovators to think about how to make technology more broadly available.
1: Mm -hmm. You're here to speak to a group of leaders in in the region in in central Ohio. Do you have a set of advice you're giving out to a (laughs) a city like Columbus when we're seeing all this change in transportation and there's a lot of uncertainty about how things are going to evolve and how do we plan for a future like that?
2: Yeah. Probably the biggest, the biggest thing I, I will say is that, that Columbus has, has, has won this challenge out of uh, sincere effort and sincere competition. Uh, it wasn't given to Columbus, you won it. And actually, uh, while the hard work may have been done to get the grant uh, and all of the various things that have come with it, the real hard work is what you're doing now, which is trying to execute against vision you have Um, one of the reasons why columbus stood out was because it had a very clear idea of of who and what it was and who and what it wanted to be and the technology was assistive it wasn't central and i think that still needs to be true
1: where do you see um Autonomous vehicles have been a big top of a topic of conversation. That was a big part of the smart cities um, initiative when you were secretary of the Department of Transportation. There was a you released the first federal policy on AVs. Mm-hmm. Where do you? Where are we now? Because it it seems like um, the talk has kind of slowed down <laughs> in terms of the a timeline for adoption of AVs. What do you think about that?
2: Well, there's still a lot of work to be done at the at the governmental level. Um, you know, we put out the most comprehensive autonomous vehicle guidance at that point the world had ever seen. And we laid out essential divisions of labor between the federal government, state governments, the private sector, and even consumers. And our thought was that over time, the meat would get put on the bone, so to speak. And so there's an entire set of federal regulations that need to be promulgated, and Congress at some point needs to needs to weigh in on uh, some of our thoughts. Uh, the states, you know, just to use an example, today you and I drive cars, and so to go to DMV and have our wonderful experience doing our driver's test is, is part of how the state determines whether we're safe operators. When you have software operating vehicles, um, is that still going to be a state function, or should that be roped under the federal motor vehicle safety standards. And our view was that it, the federal uh, safety standards could pick up the operating software. Mm. But that, that could be controversial, and mm-hmm. co- Congress can settle that question with legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, so those kinds of you know lanes of operation between the federal and state government, I think, still need to be figured out. Uh, I also think that there's a lot of work that needs to happen in the private sector around um, You know, rules around privacy, uh, rules around data sharing, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if a Ford car runs over a pothole uh, and notices it, uh, why shouldn't it tell? the other vehicles of different makes and models mm-hmm. about that pothole. So, you know, how much shared learning will exist across the entire platform of autonomous vehicles is something the private sector is going to have to work on. And that so,
1: extends to accidents too. I mean, if correct. there's something goes wrong, then yes. that that data needs to be shared correct. publicly and,
2: and included. Well, I think I think that how it gets meted out is going to be uh, you know, a conversation with industry. But uh, even near accidents, even a, a, an autonomous vehicle that maneuvers around uh, and avoids an accident, even that learning is something that I think needs to be discussed, is per- potentially shared between uh, providers. So that's a conversation that's ongoing. But uh, all that to say that, um, that it's going to take a while for the regulatory system to catch up to the technology. I think the technology is moving very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we'll be probably ten, 10, years or more out before the average person in America can call up, uh, an autonomous vehicle mm-hmm. now that, that said, I think you will see, um, you know, actually, uh, you know, our company Lyft has, uh, has some vehicles out on the road in, uh, in Las Vegas, we have a partnership with Aptiv and, and those vehicles are on the road providing mm-hmm. service today. So. Uh, you'll see it in spots and there's
1: still there's still a person in the driver's seat of those yeah Yeah. right Right. um i'm curious to hear your thoughts because charlotte had a different approach than columbus (laughs) in the last 20 years or so you know charlotte built out a light rail system Mm -hmm. columbus hasn't done that where do you see what is the role going forward for those kind of systems
2: well you know i think some of the answer lies into you know the extent to which there will be federal support for uh, significant capital investments in mass transit. and Over the last 40 years, we've seen a steady decline. Uh, when I was mayor of Charlotte, I, I had a conversation with Mayor Kasim Reed of Atlanta uh, in which he told me that uh, the Atlanta MARTA system uh, was paid 80% federal. Uh, our system in Charlotte was about 50% federal. Uh, So, the trend line looks more like Mm -hmm. less and less federal investment and more and more local investment, Uh, and I think that will start to limit um, the options available to local governments. So, um, for now, we'll see um, a lot more emphasis on uh, bus fleets, uh, except in those cases where cities have built up substantial dedicated resources to build uh, some of the more fixed rail systems.
1: Mm Looking forward from kind of this point in the transition of all these different transportation systems, what do you think are the biggest challenges that cities are going to face in the next 10 years?
2: So, one of the challenges is just dealing with growth. You know, here in Columbus, I, w- I was told that uh, Realtor.com just, just tagged you as the hottest market. Uh, and so, people are wanting to live in a place like this region. And um, when you get you know years of, of uh, significant growth you have challenges with where to house people uh, how to get people from one place to another the same trip to the grocery store that was 10 minutes you know 10 years ago maybe 20 minutes today and uh, so that kind of challenge is one that's common to a lot of cities you know there's some solutions that that are pretty readily available but they're not as well understood um, the first one is land use is a powerful weapon to help, Um, help integrate growth into a community. Um, And uh, many communities, Charlotte included, uh, were really working to put density in certain areas where the infrastructure could handle it and to keep it away from areas where it was going to be more problematic Mm -hmm. or more costly. Um, That is a significant weapon that many communities underutilize. Um, building out the facilities that are necessary to move people um, you know transit I think is absolutely a critical part of how futures will uh, cities will evolve in the future uh, third uh, another conversation we don't have enough in this country is uh, what infrastructure don't we need uh, what facilities do we have in place now that we that are costly to maintain that don't provide a particular travel advantage mm-hmm. uh, that we could do without. I th- actually think some of our interior freeways can sometimes be taken down mm-hmm. um, and uh, restoring the old street grid, uh, providing more uh, space for parks and maybe affordable housing and other things. Um, and so that's another conversation that I think needs to be had. And then finally, uh, you know, there are all kinds of uh third-party par- third uh, sources now that are now providing private sector-led transportation mobility options like Lyft that uh, I think also provide a huge opportunity.
1: Mm-hmm. And how does the public sector make sure that those private sector solutions um, are sort of a benefit to the, to the greater community and not just for certain people? I mean, sometimes they could even add to congestion, they can add to some of these issues that cities are having.
2: Well um, you know one of the one of the major issues we're we're, we're going to face as a society is how attached to the personal automobile are we and uh, you know particularly for middle class families and families on the margins, um, it's the second largest expense for people to pay for buying a car. It's like eight or nine thousand dollars on mm-hmm. average across the country so if we can create a a system where people can move seamlessly without having to undergo that expense they can actually buy the trips without buying the car that's a huge game change for many families it puts money back in their pockets so um you know services like ours offer a great opportunity for people to kind of deleverage and actually just put out the resources for the actual trips they're using and by the way our cars are idle 95% of the time, so that's not helping either. So I, I, I think when we talk about the net benefit of these, you know, ride shares and other other things, um, you know, you have to have adequate supply for people to feel like it's an option. And uh, at some point, there will be a tipping point where people will actually start to rationalize the car ownership versus the u- utility of a car. Mm-hmm.
1: Great. Thanks for speaking with us. Thank Appreciate
0: you. Appreciate it. You got it. No sweat. The Confluence Cast is sponsored this week by the Mid-Ohio Regional Planning Commission or MORPC, featuring stories about local and regional partners that envision and embrace innovative directions in economic prosperity, transportation, sustainability, and an inclusive Central Ohio. MORPC's transformative programming, innovative services, and public policy initiatives are designed to promote and support the vitality and growth in the region. For more information, please visit Morpsey.org.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you, Mayor, for that rousing introduction. It is always good to be here in Columbus, Ohio. I was told last night over dinner that there was something I had to do at the beginning. We'll see if my advice that I was given was correct. O-H. Wow. All right. Got that started out. Then I was also told to say uh, Go Jackets. Uh, apparently a pretty, big, uh, pretty big victory for uh, for the old jackets, so congratulations and good luck on the next phase of the playoffs. Uh, It's great to be here. Uh, Let me say to William and and the team here uh, at Morpsey, uh, thank you so much for inviting me to talk to you a little bit today. Uh, Now that I'm in the private sector, uh, don't have all of the instrumentalities of government at my fingertips. To give you a perspective on where you sit in the context of not just transportation, but the the overall effort that's really been an effort since mankind uh, was at the beginning to figure out not only how we can move places faster and better, but how we can make the human experience more meaningful, which I think is actually a more important goal than any technology. Um, I want to start out by telling you a little bit about me. Um, I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, And, uh, you know, the home of Michael Jordan, uh, the home of Steph Curry. Sorry, some of you. Although he was born in Cleveland believe it or not, Um, but 47 years ago I was born in in a part of Charlotte, North Carolina, the northwest part of the city, in a little um, split level, 1900 square feet, that was circumscribed by freeways. When I looked out of the front door I could see I 77. And if I walked out in the front yard and turned to the right, I could see I 85. And there were fences that more or less locked in my neighborhood. As a child, I didn't understand this as a socioeconomic phenomenon. It was just my neighborhood. But over time, what I started to realize as I went into school and started to see more of what was beyond those walls that I saw when I woke up in the morning I started to understand that the decisions that were made 50, 40, 30 years earlier were made with the idea that that the area that I grew up in was an area to go through, but it was not an area to go to. Society had all but said to me as a child, you don't matter. Your ambitions don't matter. And statistically, If you had said, on my birthday in 1971, if you had said, well, this is going to be the future transportation secretary, the future mayor of our city, no one would have believed you. And so I stand here, to some extent, representing those people. I don't care where they live, urban, rural, suburban. I don't care what their race is. But those people who are out there who are hungry, hungry to make a difference in this world and to do something to make their lives meaningful, not only to them and their families, but to society in general. Those people are out there. You can go out to the Long Street Bridge today and you can you can spend quite a bit of time watching and learning about the history of the King Lincoln neighborhood and the people whose lives were changed by the creation of a freeway much like your grandparents William so the context in which I want to talk to you today is not so much about all of the great things about technology. It's that the fundamental problem we still face, the fundamental challenge that we still have, is how do we build a future in which everybody is a part of it? How do we build an inclusive future with all of these amazing tools of technology that are available to us? And the simple message, my friends, is that our default systems won't do it. Our old ways of thinking won't do it. And by the way, I love engineers. I said this earlier today. Some of my best friends are engineers. (laughs) Okay, let me make this point. But engineers are trained to solve a problem and if the problem isn't defined well enough for them they will solve it in a narrow fashion and so for all of us you know whether we're building physical structures or whether we're building technologies or doing some mixture of the two the fundamental challenge of how we all live in the same space how we see each other as neighbors and friends and uh, fellow travelers on the path of progress as a as a country as a community as a state those challenges are still with us and no one has yet figured out the best way to do that now let me tell you something else so fast forward a little bit i get elected to local government and i one of the best things mayor uh that that we did every every third Monday in Charlotte we had a zoning meeting and man if you want a riveting meeting to attend you go (laughs) attend a zoning meeting oh my goodness every every month one of these zoning meetings we were making decisions about you know should should we have three residential units to the acre or should we zone for multi-family or where should the density be and so forth and over time I started to to develop an interest in actually going out and looking at these sites. And I went out to one Greenfield area once and they they, they showed me this major mixed-use development they were doing. The developer walked me down where the road would be. We made a left turn he said this is going to be the Grand Corridor and you're gonna have storefronts that are gonna align the streets and over those storefronts are gonna be live work units and then right at the end there's gonna be a a hotel on this side and if you turn around and look backwards there's gonna be a movie theater on that side and people are going to stroll through this area. Now for you planners you understand what I'm leading up to but for the rest of you what I learned and what I understood was that our built environment, even though we think we're making choices all the time to turn left and turn right and go straight and do it, everything, every movement we make, even in this convention center, has been thought about intimately. And we, we may make spontaneous choices to go one way or another, but those choices are shaped by how the built environment is shaped. And that is the key to why I got interested in transportation in the first place. Because I understood that it was for me, the difference in my life, a lot of it came down to the fact that even incidental, spontaneous interactions with people you don't know, connect you to that person and their experiences in ways that, frankly, I think technology is challenging us against doing today. Uh, you can put on your earbuds and walk down the street and walk past 25 people. Uh, we're starting to have a little problem now of people uh, actually distracted walking. And technology can be a force for good, but it can also be uh, a force that actually puts us more into the own, to our own pods of thinking and, and intersecting with other people. So when I went to the US Department of Transportation, I was a little bit like Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Uh, a lot of people in Washington who've been there years and years were like, who is this guy? What does he know? And the one thing I knew when I went to Washington was that Washington couldn't solve every problem I faced back in my community. I knew that there was a well-store of innovation waiting to happen at the local level. And if the levers of government were maneuvered just right, maybe we could unlock some of that innovation. So my staff came to me uh, maybe a year or two into my tenure and, and they said we've got an idea of a technology challenge and we started talking through it and from the day we started talking about this challenge it took us a full year before we announced that we were doing the smart city challenge and a large part of it was because the federal government historically doesn't do challenges that provide an open-ended invitation to local communities to invent the future. It's not what the federal government does. We typically wanted to, you know, we give money out for you to build a road, we wanna come out and look at the road. Or to buy a transit bus, and we wanna go out and look at the bus. But how many times has your federal government ever said, we know the solutions are out there, we need to create the laboratory, for those solutions to actually come to bear. That's what we endeavor to do. So we opened up the Smart City Challenge. We had 70 some odd cities apply. And from my vantage point, the challenge had already done its job. In the sense that what we had done is we'd we'd given local communities an incentive to think outside the lines, to really think about how they could harness technology to solve the problems they faced. And we were deliberate in not being prescriptive. We didn't want to tell you to buy X number of electric vehicles, or X number of autonomous shuttles, or what have you. We wanted to lay out broad parameters and let Columbus figure out how Columbus wanted to fit into that, or Portland, or the other cities the mayor mentioned. So I had an opportunity to meet uh, Alex Fisher and Mayor Genther, as they said, and uh, one of our early conversations, I think the question, I may be misrem- misremembering this, Mayor, uh, but one of the questions was, can we really win this thing? And I said, absolutely, you can win it. And as we went through the process, we down-selected to seven cities. Columbus was one of the seven, and we went through another process around that. And let me tell you why Columbus won. You won because you had real conviction about the problems you faced. You had real urgency around using this grant as a way to tackle those challenges. And frankly, for all the work that you all did and all the collaboration to actually win the Smart City Challenge, we knew, and I think you knew, that the real hard work lie ahead. Those hard conversations with communities that have historically been underserved who who are now being invited to the table and may not feel quite as eager because of past experience. The push-pull between the Various uh, pieces of the business community and the public trying to figure out how to balance those equities. Ladies and gentlemen, please don't think these challenges are unique to Columbus. Even working through those is creating the progress our country and our world need. there's another thing that I should also mention and, and, and uh, the mayor has talked about this um, you know we go to a lot of places I don't know about you but you know when I'm doing a job interview uh, with someone and everything they have to say is awesome about themselves I'm kinda thinking a little skeptically about it <laughs> so we go to all these cities and it's like man, we got the best this, we got the best that, we got the best other thing, we got this, that, do, do it. And I'm like, man, really? When we came to Columbus, you guys, like, you've got a big cheerleading section here, by the way. You've got major, major universities and thought leadership. You've got an incredible auto sector that's got uh, so much to it. You've got healthcare care and insurance and financial services, you, you've got an amazing story to tell. And by the way, you should never, ever, ever feel bashful about telling that story. Uh, it, is, it is an amazing story. Uh, but you are also clear-eyed about your challenges, infant mortality being one of them. and. I'll tell you, I've been all around the world, I've been in a lot of places, and 98% of the conversation around smart cities is about technology. And what my fear is, and the reason why this challenge and this grant are so critical, not just to you, but to the world, is because in in its criteria, We focused on not just the technology, not people serving the technology, but the technology serving the people. That is a critical element of what you're doing. And it makes your job actually a little harder than it does in the rest of the world. But it is precisely because of that that you will set the pace for how the world views smart cities. Now, let me tell you a few other things that may not be as much fun. Uh, I think that the hard work you're doing, and I know it's hard work, I I don't want to overemphasize it, but I think the hard work you're doing is exciting for several reasons. Number one, you're creating a regional you're actually creating a smart region. So much of what I've heard today is not just about the city of Columbus but it's about the suburban ring around Columbus and the rural ring around that and and how you're starting to integrate the thinking around this uh, this entire region. One of the things that I wanted to do as secretary was to create a uh, a dig once program. When you're doing a road construction project that you, you put fiber optic cable in some of our rural areas that have historically not had access to, uh, to, to uh, fiber optic and the high-speed internet, and you're doing that in this region, or will be soon. We talked about creating plans that are regionally based. That is critically important. If you've got industries that are all linked together, but they fall outside of the city of Columbus, or outside of Lyme or other parts of this region, it doesn't, it's not a license for each jurisdiction to kind of come up with its own strategy to try to to, uh, capture opportunities, it's an opportunity for the region to figure out how to build on more of all of the assets it has. And you're doing that. Look, I'm excited about the autonomous shuttles, don't get me wrong. I'm excited about uh, you know some of the work you're doing on uh, drone technology, I'm excited about uh, uh, the the uh, DSRC technology that you're, you're, you're investing in and you're seeing happen in the region. But I'm more excited and what is different here than probably anywhere else I've been is the integration of all these different technologies and the unifying vision that sort of runs through them. That is the essence of what a smart city and a smart region should be. Uh, look. In Charlotte, we had uh, five MPOs and RPOs in our region, William. Uh, like a family, sometimes we agreed, sometimes we didn't. It was difficult sometimes. But what I want to say to you is that your gathering today is part of a a long march into the future. And every part of this region has to be included in that future. And the way that you guys have already started to build that future together is pointing the way not only here in America, but really all over the world. So I want to um, leave you with a little bit of a challenge. I told you about the world I walked into, but sometime, if not today, maybe over this weekend or the next few days, I want every person in this room to close your eyes and I want you to imagine a young person, any young person, growing up in this region and what kind of future you imagine for that young person a future where that young person may be safer because of the technologies that you have an opportunity to deploy which in some some uh, corners is estimating 80% reductions in vehicle fatalities and and deaths. I want you to imagine a future in which that person may not come from a family where someone's gone off to college or may not even be in a place that's proximate to the best available schools or junior colleges, but there is a there's a way that person can access transportation that's going to connect him or her to that future. I want you to maybe imagine uh, a mom who's working two jobs to take care of her kids, and whose trip gets cut in half because of the planning and thought processes that you all are undertaking. We're not and you're not in the business of just trying to build a good future. You are not and we are not in the game here to build a future that repeats the challenges and the problems that we inherited. No, Columbus, you've got a chance to build a better future. You've got a chance to right some of the wrongs and to bring all of Ohio and all of America together and all the world with you. Uh, That's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure. But you're the tip of the spear. And we picked you because you could handle it. And I look forward to coming back here year after year. By the way, as a transportation secretary, you you kind of you kind of live a little bit through the things that you did as secretary. And I would often in the cabinet room, we'd be sitting there, and I'll close on this. We, we would sit in the cabinet room um, and I'd look across the table, and the only person who really understood my job other than the president, of course. Uh, about as well as I did was Arnie Duncan, who was our education secretary, And I used to talk to Arnie about this because we had the only two jobs in the cabinet that get defined by what happened happens over the next 20 years. And so for me, I am my heart is full being here in Columbus today, because I know you all are on the right track. I know you all are struggling with the right things. And it's okay to struggle a little bit here. Because if you struggle over the right things, you're more likely to get to the right answer. And if you get to the right answer, you create the template for someone else. The next city, the next state. So folks, thank you so much. It's great to be with you. I'm enjoying my time here in Columbus, but mostly I'm enjoying the future you all are building. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to The Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. Again, you can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Please rate, subscribe, share this episode of The Confluence Cast with your friends, family, contacts, enemies, your favorite commuter. If you're interested in sponsoring The Confluence Cast, get in touch with us. We can be reached by email at info at theconfluencecast.com. Special thanks this week to Columbus Government Television. Our theme music was composed by Benji Robinson. Our producer is Philip Cogley. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. Have a great week.